Thank you. Um, <laughs> I prefer a round of applause, but that will do. Um, so as we start, listen, um, Irma is, is getting ready if she hasn't already hit the coast. And so we're, we need to – I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. We were texting back and forth. Um, he has a church down in Cape Coral, Florida. And I was asking him how he was doing, where everybody was, where he was. And I let him know that we would be praying for them and would help them in any way that we could uh, once we find out what's going on down there. And uh, so we have a team of six folks who are preparing uh, for a trip, not this coming week, but a week from this week. They're, they're heading south. Uh, and talking to them this morning, they're not real sure which direction they're going at this point. They'll go toward Texas or they'll go toward, toward Florida, wherever the, where, they, where we can help the most. Um, and so we're just we're going to stop for a moment. We're going to pray for those folks who are the storm is coming right at them. All right. Why don't we go to why don't we go to God? Father, thank you for who you are. And and we know even now as we come before you. God, we believe that you're bigger than Irma. That she's not surprising you that that her twists and turns don't catch you off guard. We know that you are more powerful, which sometimes causes us to ask other questions. But God, this morning, we, we want to tell you that we trust you and that we know that as, as Irma hits the coast, God, we pray for those who are there, those who know you and who trust in your name and are holding on to you for strength. And we pray for those who are far from you, who haven't given you a second thought, although right now they may be thinking about you, that God, you would, you would protect them and that, that you would use us uh, when the storm, when, when Irma is gone and the cleanup begins, God, that you might use us as your children to be your voice uh, of love in their ears, that you might use us to be the hands that, that wrap love around them, that what we can send, you would use in your name, not our name, but your name, to help them and be of assistance so that they can clearly see you and your help. So God, we pray for them and we pray for us that you will use us well. Uh, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter five. Uh, and if you, and just kind of hold it there. And if you're using your smart device, the Bible app, the Version Bible app, I want to encourage you if you don't have that. If you go to the events page on Version, then, um, uh, you'll find us there under the events. So, uh, and let me add this on your handout last week. I don't know if you pay attention to this or not. You may have noticed we made a mistake when we reported our financial numbers. And, and actually I've had so many questions this year. We've obviously do, just done a poor job of clearly communicating our finances. We've given you information that's just made it very confusing. So I wanted to make sure, you know, if you take a look at the handout today, please notice that our giving is not where we hoped it would be. Obviously you can see that there. However, I also want to just reassure you, in case you didn't hear me say it a few weeks ago, we do operate on less than we receive, and so we're, we're doing okay. Um, but if you want some more information about our finances, I should say we're doing okay for right now. Uh, we hope to reverse the trend. But if you want more information on our finances, you can find that on our webpage. Just go uh, to, the, to the giving section there. There's also, I think there's a link from the Bible app. I think I was told that it was going to be put there. And we'd be glad if you have questions, we'd be glad to sit down and talk to you. So Matthew 5, if you've got there, did that give you enough time to get there? Matthew 5, in your Bible, on your smart app. As we look at these verses this morning, here's the question I want you to think about. 
Jesus became real. Just kind of add the words to me. Jesus became real to me because I think that's on your nose. Jesus became real to me when what? What was going on in your life? When Jesus became more than the guy in the book. You know what I'm talking about? More than the guy in all those stories you heard maybe as a kid or you're hearing as an adult. When did that happen? And, and just to be completely transparent with you, I kind of have a guess on that. And my guess is that Jesus became real to you when you got to the end of you. He became real to me when I get to the end of me. And what I mean by that is when I'm with families who are at the, they are with someone who is coming to the end of their life. Uh, and I was, I was with a family this past week and I reminded them what I'm about to tell you. There are moments in life when as smart as we are and as strong as we are and as capable and creative and as inventive, as medically advanced as we are, there are moments that we come to in life that remind us that we, we can't, that there's nothing else we can do, right? Have you, we've done everything we know how to do. And so we need someone who's bigger and stronger and smarter and more capable and more creative and more inventive than us. Someone who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so my guess is you've had that kind of moment in your life. And if you haven't, I'm telling you, you're going to have one of those kind of moments uh, in your life that, that don't just remind us. Sometimes it just screams in our face right? That we have come to the end of us. There's nothing we can do about this. Now, here's what would make those moments easier. It'd make those moments easier if we realized that getting to the end of me and you getting to the end of you is not just a moment in life. Reaching the end of who we are is this, is supposed to be this daily journey because when we get to the end of us, that's when Jesus shows up. When we get to the end of who we are, he steps in with who he is. So here's the thing, and I wonder if you've experienced this, because getting to the end of me is not an easy journey, right? And, and that's because me doesn't want to go there. Um, me doesn't like confrontation. Me is more interested in the promotion and success of me. As a matter of fact, me would much prefer to read a book about advancing me, not ending me. But Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And if you, listen, if you're a Jesus follower, if you've been following for a while, maybe you have heard this and it doesn't sound odd anymore. But if you're here for the first time and you're just checking out Jesus or trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing is about, and you're hearing that for the first time, you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world? Why would he say something like that? Listen, Jesus said a lot of things that seem upside down. As a matter of fact, his teachings, many of his teachings are oppositional to the things that we hear and accept today. And he invites us, this is in your notes. I want to make sure you take this because it's very important for you to know. The life he invites us to is not merely countercultural. The life Jesus invites us into is actually counterintuitive. More often than not, it actually flies in the face of, of what feels right to us. So here's what we're going to be looking at. When we, when we get to the end of ourselves and we realize that we're not finally, that we're not strong enough, smart enough, or talented enough, that ironically is what puts us in the best position to be used by God. 
When we get to the end of our trying and we just let him work through us, that puts us because real life is found at the end of me. So in Matthew chapter five, Jesus starts his most famous sermon and uh, with some of his most famous statements, we call them the Beatitudes and they all start with a blessing. And these statements give us a glimpse into some of the core values of Jesus's uh, kingdom and the foundational equations for how life is supposed to work in the kingdom of God. Some of them, once we understand them, they'll sound odd. And they all come down to the end of yourself. If you go through the Beatitudes, if you boil them down to the heart issue that Jesus is addressing, the way Jesus says life is supposed to be done in his kingdom, everything gets turned upside down. So uh, let's take a look at this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. This first couple of verses just set the stage, by the way. So... Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So Jesus sees a crowd coming. And if your Bibles are open to Matthew, uh, if you just look up a few verses in chapter four, verse 23, we see that Jesus is in Galilee and he's teaching and he's preaching and he's healing diseases. He's casting out demons. And because of this, his reputation begins to spread and people start coming to him from all over the place. So they're not just they're not just coming from Dayton, but they're coming from Centerville and Springboro and West Carrollton and Miamisburg. That's, by the way, the idea of verse 25 when we read that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. That's what that means. And then he began to teach them. Literally, those words would be translated and he opened his mouth which is, by the way, not some decoratively roundabout way of saying Jesus said. If they wanted to say Jesus said, they would have said that. But he opened his mouth. Matthew's readers would have recognized that what Jesus is about to say, he's opening his heart and his mind up to his disciples. And these, those very words that Matthew used would have tipped his audience off that Jesus wasn't just about to say something. He's not just getting ready to talk. He's getting ready to say something to his followers. And that word saying doesn't mean that he just said it once. That word conveys that Jesus taught this over and over and over again. So what he's about to say is the essence of all of his teachings that start at the beginning of his ministry and go all the way to the end of his ministry. So the question is, what is it when Jesus pulls his disciples apart to share his heart and his mind, a teaching from what's deep inside of him that's so important that he's not just going to teach it this one time like we read it in Matthew, but it's woven through everything he's going to do through the rest of his ministry. What is that lesson? What is it that's so important to Jesus that he would hammer it into his followers' minds from the beginning to the end of his ministry? Because in the the next three chapters, Jesus is about to deliver this Sermon on the Mount, very famous discipleship messages. Even if you've never read the Bible, my guess is that you have heard some of these lessons. An eye for an eye, giving to the needy, loving your enemies, right? Right? praying. Don't judge other people. We've heard those, but he begins before he ever gets to those actions. He begins with what we call the Beatitudes or as a pastor to make it memorable, what maybe would call it the B attitudes or not memorable, uh, perhaps cheesy. Um, what Jesus is saying, by the way, is before you get your actions right, you got to get your thinking right. 
So that's where he starts. Uh, and so here's where he begins, Matthew 5, 3, the very first one right off the bat. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know how you read that, but I look at that first couple of times, and I would think to myself, man, that's got to be wrong. Uh, I mean, because shouldn't he be saying, blessed are the rich? Right? That's what we all want to be. We all want to be rich. Because if you say to a rich person, boy, your, your beautiful, ginormous house is incredible. You, you, what do they say to you? Do they respond to you? Yes, I know I'm rich, right? Is that what they say? It's not what they say. They say, thank you. I'm so blessed, right? Seriously, when I hear these words of Jesus, I'm not even sure I want to develop these attitudes. Poor in, poor in spirit. Who wants to be poor in Who wants to be around people that are poor in spirit? Poor in spirit sounds mopey, kind of like I felt last night about midnight after the OSU game. I don't want to be around me when I'm like that. I want to be around peppy people, spirited people, people who are making it happen. You know, some New Testament scholars call this uh, the Jesus' manifesto the great reversal for obvious reasons. Jesus launches into this sermon with this list of very striking paradoxes that sound ridiculous at first blush. But once you begin to flesh them out, they make sense. Uh, especially when you think a little deeper and compare what he says to your personal experiences. So that's what we're going to do. There are three words I want you to note in our verse this morning. Just as we get started, the first one is the word are. So uh, do you see it in verse three? If you've got your hand out, if you would just pull your hand out in front of you. If you see that word in verse three, you should not see it. Cross it out. It isn't really there. There is no equivalent to that word in the Greek language. Sometimes when we translate foreign languages into English, we have to add words so they make sense to us, kind of bring out the full meaning of it. So in the Beatitudes, none of the Beatitudes have that word are in it. So if you just put next to that, um, and part of the problem is that Jesus didn't speak English. And he didn't speak Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew. And in the Hebrew and Aramaic, there's this expression that they would use. And it was kind of an exclamation that was, oh, the blessedness of, which is the form Jesus first spoke the Beatitudes in. So the Beatitudes are not just statements. They're actually exclamations. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. That's what Jesus said. The second word is the word blessed. Just want to make sure you pick this up. It's actually difficult to translate into English because in the ancient Greek language, it was used to describe the sufficiency, satisfaction, and security of the gods. Small g, by the way. And the Greeks called the island of Cyprus by this name because they called it the blessed or happy island. And they did that because they thought it was so beautiful, so rich, so fertile that nobody would ever have to go beyond the shores of this island to, to have a perfectly happy life. I mean, the climate, the fruit, the trees, the minerals, the natural resources that that island contained all within itself was perfect for perfect happiness. And my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, have a place that we like to get away to. And maybe it's a vacation spot or uh, that you go to red on a regular basis. Maybe it's a place that's kind of a bucket list thing. There's a place that's just so beautiful. When, you, when I say a place is so beautiful and it's so wonderful and you just can't wait to get there, you have a place in mind. You already know the place that I'm talking about because it just, it seems like the perfect, it's heaven on earth. Uh, and maybe you hope to go there someday. Blessed describes the joy that is the secret within that. It's completely independent 
of the chances and changes of life. So when Jesus uses that word, that, I mean, that's how happy, how blessed, that's what we're talking about. The third is the word poor. In Greek, there are two words for poor. The first is penes. It describes a person who has to work for a living, which makes sense, right? Work for pennies, right? Someone who is not rich, but is not destitute. They have enough. They just don't have anything extra. That, by the way, is not the word Jesus uses. The other Greek word is tokos, and that's what Jesus uses. It means absolute, abject poverty. The person who was penes had nothing extra. The man who was tokos had nothing at all. So Jesus uses the word for poor that translates to destitute or bankrupt. So in case it wasn't awkward enough to begin with, what Jesus really said, the better reading of this verse is, blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit. Blessed are you when you recognize you have absolutely nothing to offer to God. This beatitude says, oh, the blessedness of the man who is completely poverty-stricken in spirit, absolutely destitute in spirit. Jesus says that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, when it begins taking inventory and you come up with zero, when we realize we have nothing to offer, that means we're actually making progress. Back in the 70s when I was growing up, Muhammad Ali was the heavyweight champion of the world. He was forever, if you remember, he would tell people, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. You remember him saying that? He'd get his hands up in the air. Once when he's on an airplane, uh, uh, he was preparing for takeoff. The flight attendant noticed he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And she kindly reminded him, please buckle your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali arrogantly said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And uh, without missing a beat, she said, Superman don't need no airplane. Put your seatbelt on, right? <laughs> We can be like that because we all want to be invincible. And we need to retrain ourselves to think what Jesus says, the bless, oh, the blessedness of being broke. And I'm not here to break you this morning. I, and, and you don't need to break yourself. You're already broke. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms when Paul writes, he says, all of us have sinned. I mean, look around the room. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Here's one way to think about this. The less you see of your own brokenness, the more broken you are. And the more you recognize how broken you are, the more you own up to it, the more you put yourself in a position to be used by God. Brene Brown in her TED Talk on vulnerability said, we are those people. When we talk about those people, she said, the truth is we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair from being those people, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the one that bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. We are those people. We are the people who ignore the hurts of others as long as someone takes care of us. We are the people who yell at one another in the car on the way to church and then climb out with sunny dispositions to demonstrate it's all good. We are the people who think God is somehow more impressed with us because we can make up our own rules about religion and then follow them pretty well. 
We are the people who have gone into deep debt to keep up with appearances. We are the people who look down on others who are different. We are the people who take the easy way out and log onto the porn site. We are the ones. We are the people who work 50 plus hours a week trying to prove our worth. We are the people with holes punched in our walls and doors unhinged from slamming them. We are the people who spend hours a day on social media trying to convince people that our lives are better than theirs. And God tries to bring us back to reality with words like what the old prophet testament Isaiah said. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind and the wind and like the wind our sins sweep us away. On your handout, Kyle Eidelman said this, most of us want to be made whole without having to admit being broken. You know what that means, right? We want to come into church and make it look like everything's great and actually God can take us and make us great without us ever having to say we, we need his help. And so here's, here's the bad news. I'm not okay and you're not okay. We are not okay. We are both badly broken. Not gently used, not like the clothing we send to threads, right? Not gently, not gently used. Earlier we sang, laying down your life, raising up the broken to life. That's, those aren't just clever lyrics. That's, that's true of who we are. We're ripped, we're torn, we're ragged. We are citizens of the global junk heap. And the good news is that God makes the broken whole. He takes the overlooked and the undervalued and the left out and the written off and the damaged and destroyed. And then he does what only he can do with it. He loves to make the broken beautiful. Jeremiah the prophet, God sent him to the potter's house and the potter was the guy who just made stuff out of clay. And when he got there, the potter was working his wheel the water and the clay mixing and, as, and whirling as the jar emerged. But the potter's fingers failed him at some delicate point. And he found himself holding a flawed jar, something that no one would buy. And as the prophet watched, the man pushed the clay back together again and then began molding it again, look at the words in Jeremiah, as seemed best to him. That's important because of what God says to Jeremiah next. He says, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hands. The potter made another jar that seemed best to him. All the same clay, all the same cracks, but it was made new. There's no junk heap. It wasn't thrown out, wasn't thrown away. The art is endless possibilities in one piece of clay. That Old Testament imagery, I wonder if God looks at our brokenness more like something that we call kintsugi today. This is a ceramic restoration process that was developed by the Japanese back in the 1500s. Broken ceramic pieces are sealed together, but instead of hiding, concealing the cracks... They are boldly highlighted, actually traced over with gold. Maybe you've seen these. Normally, anything that's broken and refurbished reduces in value, but not kintsugi pottery. More often, the ceramic piece actually turns out to be more beautiful, more valuable afterwards than it was before it was broken. In fact, some collectors have been accused of deliberately breaking their prized ceramics 
so that they, they could be made whole with gold. Which, by the way, sounds a little like the economy in the kingdom of heaven, where the broken are most valuable. So when Isaiah writes in chapter 53 about our brokenness, he does it from the perspective of the cross before the cross even happens. And he's talking about Jesus when he says, but he was wounded for the evil we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed because of his wounds. And that word healed, the root of that word means mended, repaired, thoroughly made whole. And Isaiah is saying that we are made whole because he was broken. That is the beauty of what Jesus does when he calls us to the end of ourselves. And it's not until we get there that we can accept this. Because when we get to the, when I get to the end of me, when you get to the end of you, Jesus makes up the difference with himself. That's what the cross is all about. That's what his kingdom is all about. Helping people understand really who you are. Don't pretend. Don't use better words and pictures to make it sound like things are going better than they are. This is reality. And when you admit that, that's when I can come in and make a difference in your life. So when we come to our time of communion every week, like we're about to, we're reminding ourselves of what we just talked about. Our time of communion, when we observe that, we go back to the cross, which, by the way, tells us we had a debt we couldn't pay. Not that that we didn't want to. Not that if we just worked a little harder, we, we couldn't. It's not possible. And so you came to the end of you, and I came to the end of me. And Jesus stepped in at the cross and made up the difference with his life. That's what we remember, these emblems. That's the story we tell every week when we do this. The emblems we hold in our hands, the body, the the, the cracker that reminds us of his body, the juice that reminds us of his blood, that's what this is about. It's about helping us remember. You're a broken person, and it's okay, because I love you. And I have come, when you get to the end of you, I will step in and make up the difference with me. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. God, we do come to you now. And sometimes we can go through the motions of communion and not really think about what it's about. And God, we we ask your forgiveness for that. This takes us back to the moment in our own lives when we realized we needed you. This takes us back to the decision we made to follow you. This takes us back to the baptistry in our own lives. For me, I was 12 years old when I did this. And I knew even then, and it became more apparent the older I got, how broken I am and how much I need you. And so God, in this moment, when we do this collectively, may we be, may all of us, God, I pray all of us would be okay more than okay with admitting before you in this moment as we hold the emblems that remind us how broken we are that we would be okay with telling you that confessing to you our brokenness and asking for your healing your continued 
healing in our lives. God, our prayer is that as your people, we would honor you in these moments with how we take and what we remember as we take communion. We pray this through your son, Jesus. Amen. There was one thought that we could leave you guys with today that I could take away from today. Um, one singular idea that we could hold on to as we walk through the rest of our week. It would be this one simple phrase 
we would, um, is it up here yet? Nope, we lost it. <laughs> it would be, tell God I need you today. Um, it seems like a simple phrase, even as I say it, God, I need you. But it's both like kind of terrifying and freeing at the same time. To say that I can't do it on my own is very scary. Um, I think we all try to walk through life convincing everybody around us, even ourselves, that we can do it. We can do it on our own strength. I can be strong enough. I can be smart enough. I can be kind or merciful enough. And, and even in church, we give ourselves these things to do. If I just read my Bible every day, if I just uh, did this new Bible study, if I, if I just did these things, I could be good enough for God. And that's not what he wants for us. He created us to be imperfect without him. He created us to have to have him in our lives to be able to be kind enough and loving enough and patient enough. And so just by saying out loud, God, I need you today, we're declaring, I can't do this on my own. Without you, I am never going to be able to reach that goal that you set for me, reach the potential that you've put in my life as a human being. And it says something too when we say that, God, I need you today. We are welcoming him into our lives. We are opening the door for God to have lordship over our conversations and our relationships and our decisions when it comes to maybe our jobs, um, maybe at home, maybe we're deciding, should we move or, you know, should I take this other job or God, what do you want me to do with this life that you gave me? And so can we commit to do that together this week? I'm going to do it too. Can we commit every day this week to say out loud, try to find a place where it's not weird, where someone doesn't hear you talking to God and they're like, what are they doing? Are they talking to themselves? Find a place where maybe you feel comfortable just talking to God out loud and say out loud every single day this week, God, I need you today. And really mean it. Really say it to him. Say it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, even again next Sunday. I'm going to try so hard to remember to do that every morning. God, I need you today. And this is something I did a couple years ago where I had been trying to live on my own strength. And every day I felt like a failure. Every day it ended with regrets and I should have done this and I didn't do that. I didn't read my Bible today or I didn't have that conversation or, but when we rely on God, we don't end every day like a failure. We end every day connected with him, with his life flowing through us. So let's commit to do that together today. Mike shared a scripture earlier and with that phrase in mind, God, I need you today. Let's hear that scripture again. It's Matthew 5, 3 from the message. And it says, blessed are you when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. What a beautiful thing. When we finally surrender, when we finally admit, God, I can't do this on my own, it makes space for more of God in our lives. And I think all of us could say we need that so desperately right now. We need more of God in our lives. You know, we just had communion, and that's a very tangible reminder of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. We're, we're literally eating bread and either juice or wine, depending on, you know, the churches you attend. But it's a reminder of his body being broken and his blood being spilled out for us. So there's another ceremony that, or tradition that we go through here at church that's a tangible reminder of that phrase, God, I need you where we put ourselves in a very vulnerable state. We, we literally let someone cradle us 
and they put us into water. They submerse us underwater, which normally would be like, you're drowning me. But in the church, we do that to declare to everyone around us, our friends and our family, God, I need you. I trust you. I trust you so much that I would surrender completely to you. And so just as we walk through communion, we're going to have this moment of celebration and baptism. It's happening out in the lobby, and it is a family, this beautiful family that decided they want to get baptized together today. So will you look up at the screen, and we're going to enjoy and celebrate watching this. I'm out here with Kyle Romine, and, and actually a lot of his family and friends, and three of your kids are going to be baptized as well. Two, two of your kids, sorry, two of your kids are going to be baptized as well. There's so many people here, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, this is incredible. And, and really, it's what Jen just shared. The, the baptistry reminds us that with less of us, there's more room for God. And that's what the baptistry says. And so I'm going to ask you to repeat the confession that Peter made uh, about Jesus. You ready? Yep. I believe. I believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is Christ. The Son of the living God. Son of the living God. <laughs> Kyle, because of your confession, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and that you may receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. decided to give her life to Jesus Christ. And so, Kelly, are you re- ready? Okay. I believe. I believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. And I accept him. And I accept him. As my Lord and Savior. As my Lord and Savior. Kenley, because of your confession and your desire to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you're being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. Because of your confession and your desire to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. 